We've been in a series on marriage called The Mystery of Marriage. We've been going through Ephesians chapter 5, talking about the marriage of the man and a woman. And Paul says it's a lot like or is like the gospel, which is the marriage between Christ and the church. Tonight, we will finish the series on marriage. Raise your hand if, if it has been helpful to you in your marriage. Just curious. Okay, cool. Couple good. I'm glad to hear that. Good. I recommend, highly recommend Timothy Keller's book. Even if you're not married, read that book. It's good. I met Kelly at a wedding. Most guys meet their wife at a wedding, I think. That's what everyone told me I should meet a, a wife. So I was looking for a wife when I went to that wedding. <laughs> Kelly was the maid of honor, which means she's the highest maid. I was a lowly usher, which just means I was happy to be there. And we sat together at the rehearsal dinner and we talked about music, we talked about art, we talked about theology, we talked about anything that I can think of to talk about so that she wouldn't talk to somebody else. Do you understand what I'm saying? And we talked all night long. It was good. We hit it off. We danced. I'm a pretty good dancer, believe it or not, because I uh, could, could keep up with uh, her. She's, she, and she's an amazing dancer. And then she gave me her phone number. She wrote it on the back of a Band-Aid. And I went back home to Dallas. I was in seminary in Dallas, and Kelly lived here in St. Louis. And so for the next few months, we had a long-distance relationship. Spent a lot of time on the phone, and then I would fly down or take a Greyhound bus, which is always a fun experience, or even a, a you've done it, and, and just to visit her about once a month. Um, now, because I was a struggling seminary student, in order to afford to make those trips every month, I took two extra jobs. And to be honest with you, I have no idea how I did this. Here I am, a graduate student, taking over 20 hours. I had three jobs. I waited tables at night. I worked at a church about 20 hours a week. And on the weekends, I remodeled a friend of mine's lake house for extra cash. So I don't know how I did it. I don't know how I got my work done at school. And I don't even know how I got away from all those jobs to come visit her once a month. But apparently I did. I must have been in love, I guess. I mean, it just had energy and stamina and power and strength and focus. Got it all done. Well, about nine months later, I popped the question. You know what I mean when I say I popped the question? I popped the question. Can I tell you how I did it? I just... I want to tell you how I popped the question, because I had been planning it for my whole life. I mean, ever since I was 18 years old, I knew exactly how I was going to propose to my future wife. And believe it or not, it happened exactly the way I had always planned it. Nothing I do happens the way I planned it. I planned a barbecue last week. It rained on my barbecue. And so nothing that I plan happens, but this happens. So let me, if I could tell you the story, let me tell you how I proposed to my wife. First, she came, can I tell you this story? All right, cool. She came to Dallas um, on New Year's Eve. So right after Christmas, New Year's Eve. And the first thing we did was we went to a little French bakery there in Dallas called La Madeleine. And I um, bought her some coffee and a, and a little biscotti or something like that. And we were having a conversation. And I strategically and purposely slipped in what I had been learning in seminary, in my, in my Hebrew class. We were studying Genesis. And so I told her what I was learning about the meaning behind the word helpmate or helper. And we've unpacked that quite a bit during this series, so you know what it means. And of course, she liked to hear what it meant from, from a theological perspective. And so we talked for a little bit, and then we left. We got in my Ford, and we drove about an hour away to go on a horseback ride. I couldn't, I couldn't wait to get to this horseback ride. So we were, we were at this place, and um, we got on these horses, and it was just Kelly and I, and of course, the, the guide, and, and, and of course, the horses. And, and we're just cruising through the, the beautiful Texas prairie. And, and as we were riding, we stumbled across this picnic. It was all spread out underneath this big tree. And the picnic had pink and green everything, pink and green 
cups and plates and because Kelly's favorite colors are pink and green. And so when we got there, I said, hey, this, this picnic must be for us. So we tied off our horses and climbed on down and had a picnic. Kelly said she knew something was up when I wasn't eating anything. So here we were sitting there, you're not eating, something's going down. So um, I said, well, you know, probably what we need in this situation, it's almost perfect, but we could use some music. So I got up and I fished around in the bushes and found a Takamini guitar. And I pulled it out and started to play for her a beautiful, theologically correct song about, <laughs> about marriage and how Jesus is the center of marriage. But the problem is I couldn't get it out for the life of me. Every time I start singing, I just start crying. And so I tried a couple of times and I was so angry. And it's like I hadn't shed a tear in over 10 years, over nothing. Now I can't stop crying to get through a two-minute song. So finally I quit and said, forget it. Here, here's a ring pulled out a ring and asked her if she would be my helpmate. And you probably already know, she said yes. And she gave me a kiss. And we, uh, we talked about it for a little bit. And then we got on our horses and we went back. Now, I'm fortunate enough to have pictures of the whole thing because I had a dear friend who was hiding in the bushes all decked out in camouflage, taking pictures of a zoom lens. In fact, she had gone earlier to set up that picnic and to hide my guitar. And so it was a great, great, great day. Hey, Thanks for letting me tell you that story. I mean, I I enjoy telling that story. Who probably doesn't enjoy telling the story of how they proposed to their wife or how their wife proposed to them? I was wondering if you guys have a story. You could share it. You could share it real quick. We have a couple of minutes. We got plenty of time, actually. Well, tonight our text comes from the book of Revelation. Don't worry. We're not going to get weird. At least I don't think. When I opened up this series, I had mentioned, if you were there for Easter, that the Bible opens with a wedding. It opens with the wedding of um, Adam and Eve, and this is where we get the whole wedding formula. Two will become one flesh. It also ends with a wedding. It ends in Revelation chapter 19 and 22 with the wedding feast of the Lamb. And all throughout the Bible, this whole meta-narrative, if you will, the whole storyline of the Bible has all these illustrations and all these pictures God The Father and Christ the Son seem to be fond of using the illustration of marriage and the illustration of wedding to teach us about the gospel. So I thought it would be appropriate to end the series with the last wedding in the Bible and look at that. Let's look at the passage together. It says this, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. And it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. Woo! This is going to be exciting. This is a day we're all waiting for. And so as we look at this verse, I want to look at three things. And I highlighted them on the screen. I want to look at the marriage of the lamb to the bride. I just want to look at those three words. What is this marriage? What is the marriage all about, really? Why is this a picture in the uh, book of Revelation? Second thing I want to look at is, why a lamb? <laughs> why, does, why does John say we're marrying a lamb? That's weird. Why not a king? Why not Jesus? Why has it got to be the lamb? And then the third question I want to ask is, what does this mean about the bride preparing herself? Praise the Lord for the bride has made herself ready. And what can we learn from that? So I just want to ask three questions. What is marriage? What is this deal going on with the lamb? And how does the bride prepare herself? Marriage, lamb, bride. Got it? That's where we're going. So let's talk about marriage. Now, before we can talk about this marriage, we need to understand something about Eastern wedding ceremonies. Because we're Western. 
not, not cowboys, but, but we're in the West, we're American. And so Americans do things backwards. We drive on the wrong side of the road, right? We do everything wrong. And so there's a big difference between a, a Western ceremony and an Eastern or an Asian ceremony. So let me just unpack those for you a little bit. You're, we're all pretty familiar with the Western ceremony because you've had one yourself, right? You guys had a wedding, you guys had a wedding, I had a wedding. Or you've been to a wedding, chances are you've seen a lot of weddings on TV. So let me just, you, you, you'll agree with me when I tell you what happens at an American wedding. First, the, the man, the, the, the groom, if you will, takes his place at the front of the church and he's wearing a rented tuxedo. And he's standing there with his best man and maybe a few other groomsmen. And their audience is looking at the groom. He, and he's there, in a sense, as a picture of one who's waiting for the bride. And so the bride's about to come. And when the bride comes, before she comes, there's this orchestrated fanfare of activity in order to kind of heighten the experience of the coming of the bride. First thing that happens is the lowly ushers roll out the carpet right down the middle of the aisle. This is where the bride will walk. And then the bridesmaids come and they'll come kind of tinkering along to the sound of music by Pachelbel or Handel or something like that. And they're beautiful. They're glowing. They're happy for their best friend who's about to get married and they're all wearing the same color. It's beautiful. Then they get up and now they're waiting for the bride. So you get the groom and the bridesmaids, they're all waiting. And then comes the flower girl and she's sprinkling flower petals and pixie dust on the walkway where the bride will be walking. And then there's this dramatic pause. Some weddings it's long, some it's short. And then you'll hear the beginning of trumpet music. And then everyone stands to their feet. They all turn around and look at the back of the room and everyone's eyes on the bride and here she comes. And there's beautiful music and she's walking very slowly and everyone's ooing and awing and gasping and, and maybe even clapping for her silently. And they're taking pictures of her if you're allowed to do that in the church in which you're doing your wedding. And then the, when they get to the man, the man sees her, the groom sees her, and he just melts in a puddle of tears. And she's so beautiful. I just can't believe this is happening to me. And so it's true. In an American wedding, it is all about the woman, right? It's her day. Raise your hand if you know it's her day. It's all about the bride. The bride is the center of the universe in a Western wedding. In an Eastern wedding, however, it's the exact opposite. It's all about the groom. The groom's the center of the universe for that day. In fact, let me unpack that for you a little bit. First thing you need to think of is that it's, it's probably, especially in the ancient Near East, it is an arranged marriage. This still happens today, actually, very much so. An arranged marriage. So the father and the mother of the groom would be scouting out a woman, a bride for her, for him. And when they find, and they might even be thinking strategically about what family they want to align themselves with because now they're going to be an extended family. So the father and the mother pick a girl. The father of the man goes to the father of the girl and says, my son would like to marry your daughter. Um, my, before you make any thoughts, let me tell you about my son. He's an amazing boy. He, he, he's good. He's honorable. He, he obeys his parents. We've raised him to honor God. Um, we are carpenters by trade, and so my son's a carpenter as well, and he's an excellent carpenter. In fact, I've trained him, and he, he's better than I am, and we've made lots of money. We're very wealthy, and we think it would be great for our families to unite. Name your price. 
And these two fathers would talk for a little while and they'd come up with an agreement of a dowry or a price for the, for the wedding and a date is going to be May 12th. And then what they'll do is they'll sign a contract. This still happens in Jewish customs. I forget what they call that contract, but it sounds like a Hebrew word. And they sign this contract. They sign this um, covenant. And in that contract, both fathers have a responsibility. The father of the groom's responsibility is to keep his son pure. You know, he can't be running around at the bars and the clubs looking for other girls. He's already got a girl. And he's supposed to build a house. This is the cool part. He's got to leave his father's house and build a house for he and his new bride-to-be whenever they get married. The father of the bride's responsibility is to keep her pure, of course, and to even keep her hidden, hidden away from all the other suitors who might try to offer more money or something like that. And then also maybe even keep her hidden from the groom. In most cases, the bride would have never seen the groom. She has no idea what the groom even looks like or who he is. And that contract could be written from anywhere from a week to seven years. You might remember the story of, of Jacob and, and Rachel and, and Leah. There was a seven-year contract. He wasn't going to get to see her or marry her for seven years. All right, so you can imagine the kind of anticipation this would build for both people. For the girl, she's never seen the man before, so she doesn't know what he looks like or who he is. And so the father would have to encourage her. The father would say, um, oh, wait till you meet him. He is such a good-looking young man. He's tall, dark, bald, and handsome. <laughs> and he's a good man. He's well-respected in the community. He's, he loves his mother and his father, and he's wealthy. He's going to take care of you. And you can imagine the girl's just, oh, I can't wait to meet him. And she's fashioning a dress, actually. She's, it's custom. She will make her own dress because when she's presented with this dress, she's not just standing there showing who she is and what kind of dress she picked at the bridal suite, but she's showing how, how creative she is in building her own dress. And then I can understand the man's position. The man's position, he's building a house. Can you imagine how much anticipation you would have? for your, Oh, I can just see her now. She's going to be over. I'm going to build like a little closet for her so she can put her shoes, you know, all lined up in a color-coordinated way. And then, you know, I'm going to bump out this wall over here so we can have an extra master bedroom, you know, with a ginormous shower so she can shave her legs because I want her to shave those legs, you know. And then we are going to, you know, he's just getting all excited about his future wife. <laughs> so you can see the major difference between a Western ceremony and an Eastern ceremony. But what I really want us to see is, do you see now how a wedding can be illustrated to Christ and his relationship to us, the church, whom he calls our bride, his bride? Let me, let me unpack it for you a little bit. First of all, the Bible is replete with stories, with, with scripture, with verses that tell us that Jesus has purchased our soul. He's purchased our hand, if you will, and he's signed a contract or he's made a covenant which says there is nothing that can separate you from me. You will be my bride. Nothing can, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, the Bible tells us. And so he's purchased us with a great price, a very wealthy price, and he's signed a contract, a covenant saying, I will marry you. And then he's also gone to build us a house. In fact, he told his disciples, I'm going to prepare a place for you. He says, if, I, if it weren't true, I wouldn't have said so. So Jesus says, it's true. I'm going away to prepare a place for you. But don't worry. I've got a contract on your life. You're going to be my, you're going to be my bride because I paid for you with a very, very hefty price. Do you, see the, do you see the parallels? And the bride is waiting 
She's just waiting for the day in which the bride, the groom comes. On that day, oh, this is important. On that day when the wedding happens, everyone knows the day, but nobody but the groom knows the hour. And so the bride would get up like at four in the morning and she'd get dressed and she'd put on her dress and she'd have these bridesmaids to help her. The Bible calls them virgins. These virgins would help her. And some of the virgins would stand outside and keep a lookout, keep a watch out for the groom. And when the groom would come, they would say, here comes the groom. And then everyone would ready themselves and the groom would come and there'd be a party. And when the groom came, there would be this orchestrated fanfare, much like we have for the bride today. There'd be groomsmen dancing and singing. There'd be a parade. There'd be all these cattle coming through, this dowry being brought in. It'd be a big fanfaric thing. And then the, the groom would take the bride into the wedding chamber and they would consummate the marriage. And then they would come out and they would party for seven days. Can you believe that? Seven days of drinking and eating. Hey, by the way, this is, you might remember Jesus his first miracle was at the wedding of Cana, where he turned water into wine. We don't know what day it was. It could be, he could have been on the seventh day, the fifth day, but Jesus comes in on this seven-day feast. It's a big day. We're going to have that big feast with Jesus. We have no idea what he looks like. We've never seen him face to face, but he's coming. And when he comes, someone's going to say, here comes the bridegroom, and we're all going to have a big party. Are you excited about that? Yeah. I'm excited. That's going to be awesome. We're going to be, I think it's a real event that really will Happens. So that's what happens with a marriage. So next, let's ask this question about the lamb. Why does John, John's the guy who wrote Revelation, why does John use the illustration of a lamb when he's talking about us marrying Jesus? I mean, towards the end of the New Testament, we sort of stop talking about Jesus as the lamb, and we start talking about Jesus as the Lord, or the King, or God. Even in Revelation, especially at the end of the Bible, we see Jesus high and lifted up. Jesus at his throne. Why would John repeatedly say the marriage supper of the lamb? What is he trying to get at? It's kind of peculiar when you think about it. Who wants to marry a lamb? Well, I'll tell you what I think. I think there's a couple of reasons why John uses the term lamb. The first reason is, is because it's not John who wants to use the term lamb, but Jesus who wants to choose use the term lamb. I think Jesus wants us to remember him as the one who, was, who died for the sins of the world. In other words, the same Jesus who did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped but humbled himself to death is the same Jesus who says, at my wedding, I don't want to be wearing my fancy duds. I want to be seen as the one who humbled himself to the point of death. I like what Charles Spurgeon says. He says, um, what do I infer from this? I gather, in a word, just this. You know, I think it's funny. Why does Spurgeon say, in a word? And then I see like a hundred words coming. <laughs> Can I start saying that? Uh, in, in a word. <laughs> I gather in a word, just this, that Christ anywhere, even in his highest glory, still wishes us to, be re to regard him as the sacrifice for sin. He desires to be viewed by us in his character as the lamb slain from the foundations of the world. And this is a character which he never lays aside, and it is as the lamb that he will manifest himself in the consummation of all things when the church is perfected. Spurgeon goes on to say, it was Jesus who was the lamb who was sacrificed for the Israelites in the old covenant. It was Jesus as the Passover lamb who was sacrificed for the Passover angel. It was Jesus as the lamb who died on Calvary for the sins of the world. And it will be Jesus as the lamb who unites to us in marriage because it is Jesus's 
sacrifice that purchased us to be his. That's a beautiful picture. In fact, another way of saying it is this. On your wedding day, don't you kind of want to show yourself in such a way that is the most, in other words, to show the people this is how much I love my bride. We sort of do this with the way today with how much money we spend on the wedding. How much, you know, how many people we have and how much money we spend on it. It's saying, this is how awesome day this is. This is how. And for Jesus, the most amazing way for him to present himself as one who loves us is to present himself as the one who sacrificed on the cross for us. There's no demonstration of his love that's greater than him dying on the cross. So why not present as the lamb rather than as the king? For my wedding, I wanted to do something great. I wanted to do something amazing for Kelly so that I would show her Here's how much I love you. So I, I sang that song, that song that I couldn't get out whenever I proposed to her. Actually, she had been asking me for months, come on, you need to sing that song, you need to do it. <laughs> and I'm like, no, I don't want to. What if, I, what if I choke? I mean, I choked when I proposed to just me and you underneath that tree. And what, what if I choke in front of all those people on the most emotional day of my life? That'd be horrible. I don't want to ruin our wedding <laughs> because I'm going to choke. And I've had a history of choking when I sing in public, by the way. So I, I did not want to do this. But what she didn't know is I had already been planning with the, with the wedding director um, that I could do that. And so when we got married, the pastor allowed me to step away from the altar for a time to put this guitar over my rented tux and to play this song and sing it. <laughs> and with God's help, I actually did get through it. And for me, that was my way of saying, this is how much I love you. I'll risk my life up there in front of all those people for you. <laughs> now, I know that's not that big of a deal. <laughs> it was a big deal for me. But it's a bigger deal that Jesus said, this is how much I love you, that I would die on the cross for your sin. I don't care if you see me as the king. I want you to see me as the lamb because that's how much I love you. I wonder if tonight you know that. I wonder if you know how much Jesus loves you. I wonder if you know that he loves you so much that he died for you. He didn't just purchase your hand, if you will, with a dowry. He purchased your soul with his very life and on a cross, nonetheless. In this passage, at the end of it, it says, And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And it's as if God is saying, John, I want you to write this down. John, I want people to read this. John, I want people to know that to be at this wedding supper, you're blessed. You do not want to not be at the wedding supper like those five virgins that Dan read earlier who weren't there. You want to be there. My question is tonight, if you're a non-believer, if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, you need to get right with Jesus because you want to be there. You want to be at that wedding feast. Listen to this parable. I want, I want to read this, this parable to you real quick. A man once gave a banquet, Jesus said, and he invited many people. And at that time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who have been invited, come for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. And the first one said to him, I have bought a field, and now I must go out and see it. Please, can I be excused? And another said, I bought five oxen, and I need to go examine them. <laughs> what that's about. <laughs> Please, can I be excused? And another said, I have married a wife. Okay, uh, field, oxen, wife, what is this? And therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and he reported these things to his master. And then the master of the house became angry. And he said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and to the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. 
And the servant said, sir, what you have commanded has been done. And still there's room. We got lots of room. We got more seats at the table. And the master said to the servant, go then out to the highways and to the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Interesting parable. I know you've heard it before. There's one thing I want us to notice about this parable, though. And that is, if God is the one who's throwing the banquet, God's the one who's having this wedding feast, and the servant is Jesus, it's clear that God and Jesus want no one to be absent from this party. He first invites people, and they say they don't want to come. And then he says, well, let's invite the poor. Let's invite the lame. Let's invite the blind. Let's invite the riffraff. Let's invite everyone. And then there's still more room. Well, then let's just go out to the highways and the hedges, which means let's get outside of town and grab people who are just passing through and let's compel them. And the reason why you have to compel them is because they don't know who this dude is who's throwing the party. So let's compel them. Tell them, you need to come to this party. This dude's an amazing dude. So the thing I want us to see is that God and Jesus loves you so much that he would go to the highways and the byways. He would go anywhere to bid you to come. Did you notice how many times he said, come? Come to the wedding feast, come. And then those other guys said, no, we can't come. No, no, we can't come. We got, we got a house, we got a small house, we can't come. So Jesus says, then go tell them to come or go to the highways and bid them to come. Jesus is saying, come. So if you refuse to come, then you need to know tonight that it's not because he has rejected you. It's because you have rejected him. He wants you there. Blessed is anyone who comes to the party, and you're all invited. Tonight, Christ is inviting you to the party. Christ is inviting you to the wedding supper of the Lamb at the last days of everything. And you want to be there. If you feel that tug on your heart, then I want, I want you to respond. I want you to say, yes, I'll be there. All right, so then the last thing we need to talk about is the bride. So the bride. And, and, and the, most, the thing I really want to ask is, we probably need to consider this because we're the church and we're a church plant. And so we're a young, small church. And we might need to ask ourselves, what is it that this church is doing to make herself ready? What does the bride do to make herself ready? So I want you to picture this, if you will. Picture the church that is a, the church with a capital C, the big church, the, the, the universal church, the ecclesia, the body of Christ. And when I say that, I mean past, present, future, Asian Indian, African, English. I mean, the church universal. Picture all of those people somewhere in heaven at this wedding banquet, getting ready to, to cut into some steak. I'm hoping it's steak. And we're waiting. We're waiting for the lamb. What a, I mean, I just want us to try, to try to put our minds around that. That is the church. That is the people that Jesus has purchased with his life. Are you one of those people sitting at that table thinking he purchased me with his life and now I'm here at this table? And then once you get your mind around that, once you can imagine that for a second, think about it. God has chosen from the history of the world, it seems, the most intimate, the most passionate illustration in order to teach us how much he loves us. There is, there, is, there is nothing in our human language more intimate and more passionate than the way a man loves his woman. See also Michael Bolton. God is essentially saying, I love you more than a husband loves his bride 
on his wedding day. It doesn't get better than that. And Jesus says, you're my bride. So here's the first thing I want us to hear. As the bride, you're in a place of honor and privilege. Do you feel that? I mean, you should be happy. You should be joyful. You, you should be thinking inside of yourself or you should be glowing outside of yourself much like the bride glows on the day of her wedding. You should be glowing. That's the first thing I want us to, to be encouraged. You are the bride of Christ. And it doesn't get better than that. I don't know how it gets better than that. That's awesome. But the second thing we need to ask ourselves is, what is the posture of the bride? It says that she has made herself ready. And this is, well, this is huge. There's a lot of theology built into that. We're not going to go there tonight because we've only got about five minutes. But it seems consistent throughout Scripture, so we probably need to learn something from it, at least, you know, briefly tonight. So it says this, And his bride has made herself ready, and it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen and bright and pure clothes. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints, says John. So the question we need to wrestle with tonight as we close out this series is this. What does the bride do in order to prepare herself, in order to make herself ready? I mean, I guess we could assume, based on the illustration, a couple of things, easy ones. She must be, you know, maintain her purity, right? The bride does that. She maintains her purity. Maybe she needs to make a dress, and that seems to be said here with the fine linens and the bright and pure clothes. And she needs to be waiting. She needs to be hopeful. She needs to be expecting. So here's the question I want to ask us. Are we ready? <laughs> no. Are we waiting? Are we ready and waiting, if you will, for our groom? Are you eagerly and hopefully and expectingly waiting for the return of the groom? I, I wonder, maybe you're with me, if the church really is yet to make herself ready. I mean, I don't sense that we have been keeping ourselves pure. I may be wrong. Maybe it's just me. And I'm pretty confident that we're not waiting with hopeful expectation for Jesus to come back. We're more waiting for other things, like for the light to turn green, for crying out loud. We're comfortable and we like it here. I don't, wanna, I don't want Jesus to come yet. I got more work to do. I want to watch my kids grow up. So let me say this, because I want to make sure that I say this first. Jesus loves you. So much he's purchased you as his bride. That's the first thing we need to hear. Never forget how much he loves you. That's huge. Don't forget that. But on the flip side, we need to ask ourselves, we need to seek our heart. Do we love him? Here's something. I can't help but think that in the beginning of, of Revelation chapter 2, <coughs> Jesus kind of condemns this church called Ephesus. By the way, it's the same Ephesus that Ephesians was written to. And Ephesians 5, the passage that we've been going through about the marriage. In this letter to Ephesus, Jesus says, this is what I have against you. Do you know what it is? You have forgotten. Anyone want to finish it? Your first love. Ephesus, the church that got the letter Ephesians. <laughs> Jesus says, you've forgotten your first love. And if you read it, he goes on and on and on. He says, I'm, I'm glad that you're a pillar of the truth. I'm glad that you hate false teaching. I'm glad that you hate the way of the Nicolaitans, or another way of saying it, evildoers. I'm glad that you hate all those things, 
but this I have against you. You've forgotten your first love. And then Jesus says, repent and do the things you did at first. What do you think that is? Do you remember what it was like when you first met Jesus? Do you remember what it was like when you first became a Christian? What were the things you did then? You couldn't wait to tell people to come. Come to the, you got to meet this guy. You got to, you got to, you got to meet my groom. You got to meet, you got to come to the feast. So, so Jesus says to Ephesus, you've forgotten your first love. You need to repent and do those things you did at first. Here's another thing. The last verse of, of Revelation says this. Blessed is anyone who comes and drinks of the water of living, of, of the living water of life. Anyone who comes will have life. Jesus once again is inviting anyone in the very last verse of the Bible, come and drink my water. And then he says, the spirit and the bride say, come. The spirit and the bride say, come. Now you and I know that if a non-believer becomes a believer, it's because the spirit has brought them there, right? The Holy Spirit has opened their eyes and drawn them there. But I think we forget that the Bible says the spirit and the bride say come. The church's job is to woo people, to, to draw people, to bid people to come. You forgot your first love. The spirit and the bride say come. I think that the way the church makes herself ready is she's in love with Jesus. And if she's in love with Jesus, she's following Jesus. And there's this urgency. There's this sense that he's coming back soon. And because he's coming back soon, I must, with the spirit, bid you to come. Wouldn't you agree? So the question I'm asking is, are we in love with Jesus? Have we forgotten our first love? You know, I know it's a small group, but it would help if someone just said amen. Or you're wrong, one of, one of you. Somebody say something. Amen. amen. You, think we're, you think we're off? Definitely. We're not perfected yet, that's for sure. So here's, the, here's, here's what I'd like for us to think about as we do communion. What do you need to change about your life in order to be the kind of wife that you would want to marry? Think about this for a second. You wouldn't want to marry a wife who, you know, just shows up to the wedding whenever it's convenient for her. He's waiting for you to come show up. No, you don't want to marry a wife like that. You wouldn't want to marry a wife who says she'll start being pure when she gets married. <laughs> At least I don't think you would want to marry a wife like that. I wouldn't. But do we do that to Jesus? You wouldn't want to marry a wife who treated your wedding day as something she could wait to the last minute to begin preparing for. Oh, we got 24 more hours. <laughs> I'll get to it. You wouldn't want to marry a wife who showed up in some ragtag, run-of-the-mill kind of a dress either. You want your wife to labor over that thing, to be proud of that thing. And Jesus wants us to prepare ourselves for that great day, to fashion our dress, to wear fine linen and beautiful clothes, to be ready, to be working, to be anxious. That's what kind of wife I want to marry. And I believe it's the kind of wife he wants to marry. And I feel completely convicted that I'm not that kind of wife. We are not that kind of wife.